0: We are in a series in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you somewhere, page um, 224. Ruth 4, it's the last chapter in this little book. And we're going to make a reference to 1 Kings and Luke 5. So you might want to find a way to put a marker in your Bible there, 1 Kings 17. Again, if you're using the Blue Bible, it's page 299, and Luke 5 is 860. We've approached the book of Ruth like a a mini-series, uh, four chapters, four episodes. And um, I, I hate to inform you that this series hasn't been renewed for a second season. Uh, I mean, very disappointing that somehow four more chapters didn't appear in my Bible. I've enjoyed it so much that I decided I would make uh, episode four a two-parter, just to make it a little bit longer, (laughs) because I wanted to keep it going one more week. If you were here last week, we talked about episode three, a strange strategy, and it ended in a cliffhanger. Remember, the whole scene for episode three was at night. It was in the dark. And nearly the entire time, there was this very uh, tense section of the story where Boaz and Ruth were laying down together alone in the dark. And there was great risk taken. There was a lot of sexual tension. There was whispered promises and proposals. And in this very strange chapter, the Moabite servant Ruth proposes to the Israelite landowner Boaz And Boaz whispers back to her in answer to her proposal, yes, I'll marry you. It's a great, great scene. And just as you're, you're wiping a tear from your eye and just saying, oh, this is so beautiful, and cue the heart emojis and everything, Boaz says, but there's another man. Oh, no. I mean, how can it be? We've waited for this to just culminate at this moment. And he whispers to her, there's another There's another redeemer. And you just are screaming at the television screen. We don't want another redeemer. We've, we've been waiting for you two to get together the whole time. And episode three ends just before the sun breaks the horizon. Ruth slips out of Boaz's arms, makes her way back to Naomi. And Naomi, you remember what she tells Ruth she has to do? It's that four-letter word nobody likes. Wait. This this active risk taking Ruth, all through the story is now told to wait. She's come to the end of her action, and now she has to wait on somebody else. And we mentioned that waiting is not a flaw in God's design; it's a feature. It's very helpful for us to know that, because a lot of times you feel like, okay, I'm getting stuff done, I'm getting stuff done, but. Darn it, i got to wait now. Something could be happening, but I've got to wait. And you feel like it's a flaw, but I want you to hear the Lord say, Hey, that's my design. Part of your journey is going to be waiting. Waiting. You just might remember that the next time you're at the grocery store or, you know. God may have just lined you up in in the line where the grocer is very slow at the register. And it's just a little... You're just building your muscle, your little waiting muscle. It's okay to wait. And so here we find ourselves. The sun has broken the horizon, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let's stand together as I read these six verses. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And when he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it and come after you, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance then the redeemer said i cannot redeem it for myself lest i impair my own inheritance take my right of redemption yourself for i cannot redeem it you may be seated let's take a moment to reflect on god's word I want to begin this sermon today by reading this poem that you have in front of you, if it helps you to follow along. Above all, trust in the slow word of God, slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability, and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually, let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you. And accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. How about you? How do you do at trusting the slow work of God? I want to ask for a show of hands who prefer to skip the intermediate stages. Hey, God, I can tell we need to go this direction, but can we just skip over all the stuff in the meantime and just get to the end? I wonder what happens to you emotionally when the work takes a very long time. I wonder how well you do accepting living in anxiety. How long can you stay in the stages of suspense and being incomplete before you stop waiting and take control? On a micro level or an individual level, Ruth and Naomi must learn to trust in the slow work of God. But it's important for us to understand the writer also wants to see that He's saying the same thing on a macro level or a national level. The writer is actually telling the reader, you and I, two different stories that have a lot of the same points. On an individual level, he's telling us about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but he's also telling us a national story. He's telling us how Israel went from judges to kings. And the individual story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, it's all tied in together with this larger story. So we're, we're coming down and focusing like a microscope on just these few human lives, these few years. But they're like a one link in a long chain of events that God is also at work at. And so the nation of Israel must trust in the slow work of God, not just Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. But God's at work in a nation, and it's slow work. Let me explain to you. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. That's how the episode opened. And you're supposed to understand in that, that it's a place when the country, or a time when the country was in chaos. There was a a cloud of spiritual darkness over the land. And it seemed so dark that it seemed like no real spiritual light or life penetrated it. It was just a country where, and it says at the end of Judges, where everyone did what they thought was best. Can you imagine living in a country like that? Where it just feels like everyone does what they think is best, that there's some kind of spiritual cloud that has covered the country and and it just doesn't feel like much real life and life penetrates into that time. Well, that's, that's the kind of time that Ruth lived in. And this tiny book of Ruth is like a little tiny wedge in between Judges and First Samuel where kings come into play. And maybe Ruth is like a, like a small pebble in your shoe. So that you're reminded at every step, even if things are chaotic around you, every step you feel that little tiny pebble to say, hey, God's at work. God's at work. I mean, lots of things may may be moving forward quickly, but every step you're reminded by just reading these four chapters, even if it's chaotic, even if it's darkness in my life or over a nation, God is still at work. And that my life, my time, is connected to a a larger story. Ruth's life was connected to a larger story. I hope you know that your life, your life is connected to a much larger story. Way outside of the time that you're actually going to be alive. God has been working to bring you into the timeline, into this little piece of the fence. And he's going to use your life to connect it to a much larger story. And the writer wants us to see that God's at work in your own individual story, but he's also at work in a nation. And we know that from chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz and Ruth, they eventually get married, spoiler alert. And she conceived and bore a son, and then all the women of the town gather around Naomi and give her this blessing, which we'll talk about next week. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. He's going to restore your life, nourish you at your old age. So Naomi, verse 16, took the child and laid him on on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of the great king, David. So you're supposed to feel that like, wow. She could have never guessed her, her tiny little life, her tiny little faithfulness. I mean, she didn't live, Ruth didn't live to see David. David. She may have lived to see Jesse, but we know as the reader and the writer is trying to tell us, hey, this little story is connected to a much larger story, a national story, actually a global story. David would give birth to a son who would rescue the entire world. His name is Jesus. So in the book of Judges, it looks like the entire country was going to hell in a handbasket, as my mother would say. Everything's just going to hell in the handbasket. And you just knew when she said that, just get out of the room because nothing good is going to happen right at that, that moment. You know how much time passed between the book of Judges and when David became king? It's a long time. 400 years. what what happens if god's using you for something that you'll never see it'll happen in 400 years is that okay with you or do you need to get this all wrapped up in the next 15 or 20 minutes <laughs> see i I want, I want us to digest that god's at work in the book of judges he's at work in one in one little ecosystem boaz and naomi and ruth So he's at work in your little ecosystem, but your little ecosystem is tied to a much larger story, which might be hundreds of years from now. So do you trust the slow work of God in your life? Do you trust the slow work of God in a nation? Does absolutely everything hang on the 2024 election? See, that's what you're going to feel like. What if God's orchestrating something right now, not for 2024, but 2424? Is that okay? That he's lining it up somehow that this great leader is going to come in at a time the world needs 400 years from now, and your role right now for your lifetime, and you'll never see it, is just to remain faithful like Ruth did. Is that okay? Or do we have to get the right person in the right office and get everything straight and get it all done so that I can retire and feel good about that? I mean, do you see, our, our, the way we tend to think seems to be as, as small as a lifetime. And God's trying to help you say, see, He's doing something so much bigger. And yes, you're important. Your little faithfulness is important, like Ruth's is. But he's about something so much grander in your life. And it really matters how you live. So can you trust, above all, the slow work of God? That's not even chapter 4. Now I'm getting to chapter 4. That was like bonus information there. Chapter 4 opens with the morning sun at full strength and Boaz at full strength. Striving for the city gate. The city gate, think of as a business plaza. It's not just the opening and a wall. It's where all the business people would gather. And things would get decided, things would get done in this plaza that was around the city gate. So Boaz has official business to take care of. So he's with purpose He's striving towards the city gate, and he's hoping he would find this other redeemer. And did you notice in verse 1? And behold, remember this? Lo and behold, who would show up on this day? The other man shows up. So I just want us to be reminded because the writer's reminding of this. Remember in chapter 2? You remember episode 2? Ruth goes out and gleans a field, and it just happens. Remember that? It just happens she gets into Boaz's field. Who knows? And lo and behold, who shows up that day? Boaz. I mean, it's the Hallmark movie, right? And the same thing is happening. Boaz is taking action, and God is working on a split screen. He's bringing this Redeemer. So I just want you to know you're taking action. God is at work he's making things happen too. So I don't want you to think you're alone, and I don't want you to think while you're waiting, like Ruth is, that something isn't happening. God's always making things happen. And lo and behold, this other man shows up, and he says, turn aside, friend. I don't know if you picked up on this, but it's important. The writer wants you to pick up on it. Is that this man never gets a name. In the Hebrew, turn aside, my friend, is two Hebrew words that rhymed, which meant something back then. Poloni almoni. That's how you might say it. Turn aside, Poloni almoni. And it would be the way we would say, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. Just you, you don't even get a name. Just you're Mr. So-and-so now for the rest of this story. And Boaz calls over Mr. So-and-so and asks him to sit down. He gathers these elders around to say, hey, we're going to tra- have a transaction here. And he explains the situation with Naomi to Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so never heard about this. Hey, I'm the nearest relative. I'm the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz tells the story or maybe say makes the offer in such a, an interesting and I would say shrewd way. And it feels like a test. You tell me what you think. It feels like he's giving away a piece of information to sort of test what kind of kinsman redeemer is this person going to be. So Boaz informs Mr. So-and-so that the old widow Naomi is in financial hardship. She needs to sell her land. And your payment for the land is going to help her like Social Security is going to help her get through her old age. But when she dies, you get the land. So you get to add this to your real estate portfolio. And so Boaz says this in verse 4, But if you redeem it, then redeem it. If not, I come after you. And then he said, this is Mr. So-and-so, and everyone is leaning in towards their television screen screen, saying hope he says no and he says i will redeem it and you're screaming now at your television screen no we don't want you to redeem it we want boaz and just before you start throwing popcorn at your tv screen and start yelling boaz what about ruth you never even mentioned her this is the shrewd part Boaz says, "Oh, just one more thing." Now, I thought of this illustration, but it's only going to apply to people who are at least sixty, like me. So, I'm sorry I'm eliminating many of you all with this illustration, but not, illustra- not every illustration could meet for everybody. But how many are going to remember the television show Columbo? Okay, everybody over sixty, all right? And if you remember that show it's about a detective he's kind of like a bumbling detective smokes a cigar one eyes kind of closed a lot he's got a trench coat and he kind of shuffles in and he doesn't look like he's going to solve any case he's not doesn't appear to be that smart and he's always talking to the 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 bad person you don't know it at the beginning but he's talking to the person who did the crime and he just kind of asks him sort of strange questions and well okay i guess that's all there is and do you remember what he does? How many remember this? He kind of shuffles away like he's gone, and you're going to be like, come on, Columbo. And he goes, oh, just one more thing. Remember this? I'm glad five of you all are remembering this. <laughs> and, and he gives us some zinger of a question, you know, like, oh. And the person's kind of trapped. It's, it's the place where evidence comes out. And I think this is the way Boaz is doing it. I'm just giving you the first half of the story to, to see what kind of kinsman redeemer you're going to be. Oh, I, I, I just have to pay something for this old woman and she's going to die soon and I'm going to get her money and her, her uh, field. Great, I'm, I'm all in for, in for that. Oh, oh just, just one more thing, verse 5. Uh, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire, what does he say? Ruth the Moabite. I think that has emphasis, don't you? Not, not the, you know, the just the young girl who works hard. No, it's Ruth the Moabite. So this Israeli man is like, I, I know. <laughs> I think it's very cagey by Boaz. Remember how Jesus says, "Be shrewd as a snake, innocent as a dove." There's a shrewdness about Boaz here. just when it looks like Boaz is going to give away his chance at Ruth, he tells Mr. So-and-so about Ruth, the Moabite. And he says, here's the real offer, Mr. So-and-so. To be the true kinsman redeemer, you'll have to pay so that someone else prospers. That's key. If you really want to be the true kinsman redeemer, the person God has designed to be a kinsman redeemer, you get to pay and someone else gets to prosper. you get to pay and somebody else gets the profit. Are you good with that? You feel the test there? See what kind of kinsman redeemer will he be? Will it be well, you pay and you pro I pay and I prosper or I pay and you prosper see that's he's setting up this little test to see what kind of kinsman redeemer. It sounds like he was all in for I pay if I prosper, but now I pay and then she prospers. Uh, Let me reconsider. Verse 6, once Mr. So-and-so discovers the cost, he changes his mind. Now now let's just try to take Mr. So-and-so's, get in his shoes for a moment. This is a practical move on his part, is it not? I mean, probably if you and I were his friend, you'd be like, oh, uh, deal went sour. Sorry, bud. Probably shouldn't take that on. I mean, you're going to take on this old woman. She's going to be dead in a few years. But, I mean, you take this young woman on. I mean, she's going to end up being your wife, and then you're going to have a kid. And it's got, you're, You know, your inheritance is going to get all messed up. And probably the practical thing is just not to take that on. He, he does what is practical. one commentator says this, Mr. So-and-so was interested in ministry to the poor only if there was a payoff for himself. The irony, this is the key part, the irony is that by seeking to protect his future legacy and preserving a name for himself, Mr. So-and-so ended up leaving himself nameless. You get that? I'm trying to protect my inheritance. I'm trying to protect my name. I'm trying to protect my legacy. Well, nobody even knows your name now, Mr. So-and-so. He missed out. This is so key. He missed out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all by trying to protect his own name. A place in God's plan of salvation. Wow. I mean, that hurts. Just turn to your neighbor right now and say, don't be Mr. So-and-so. Don't be Mr. So-and-so. I mean, this is the worst person to be in this whole story. Don't be Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. Don't don't be this practical person who's only thinking about themselves. Mr. So-and-so is doing what the world would consider practical Focusing his attention on himself, his brand, his legacy, his estate, his name, he becomes invisible. He he shooting at the wrong target. I was we had Iron Leadership here on Friday and used this illustration. Showed a little video of a guy named Matt Emons. I think is his name. He's an Olympic rifle shooter. And he's all set up to win a gold medal. And the guy next to him, who's his nearest competition, hits near the target, not at the center. But after that, all is required because he's such a good shooter is he just has to hit anywhere on the target, and he wins a gold medal, which he could probably do blindfolded. So he lines up, and he shoots, and then you see the target, no mark on the target. And instantly, he he realizes, I aimed at the wrong target down the line. And a gold medal that was right there for the asking, he got no gold, no silver, no bronze, nothing, because he aimed at the wrong target. See, Mr. So-and-so aimed his whole life at the wrong target. I'm trying to preserve my name. I'm trying to make a name for myself. I'm trying to preserve a legacy. I'm I'm trying to do all these things and I'm aiming at the wrong target. And maybe some of you here, you're just lined up on the wrong target. Where did we begin to hear this idea of making a name for yourself in the Bible? You know where that started? It's not Genesis 3. (laughs) Close. Genesis 11. Tower of Babel. Let's build a tower to the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. See, we got to leave a mark. I got to be known. I mean, I'm I'm 60. I got 20 years left or something like that. So I better work on my legacy. I got to get it down. I mean, we got to get a portrait out there and a plaque and we got to get a bunch of things because I got to make sure I last, I got a platform. I'm That's totally the wrong target. Genesis 12, God calls another man, Abraham. Abraham, will you risk it all for me? You got to leave your country. You got to leave everything that's familiar. You got to do something that's completely impractical but if you do, this was his promise, I will bless you and what does it say? I will make your name great. Do you see the difference? Abraham lined up risking everything for God and got a name. This man, Mr. So-and-so, lined up everything to make his name great and we don't know him. He's Mr. So-and-so. Abraham and Boaz, these two great men in the Old Testament are shadows of Jesus who left his home country risking it all and God gives him a name that's above every name. Boaz came to serve, not to be served and give his life as a ransom for at least Ruth. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. I, I, we, we need to know this is God's economy. This is how his economy operates. You give so others prosper. Remember Jesus? Anybody want to follow after me? Take up your, take up your cross. You pay so others prosper. That's God's economy. So we get to verse 6. It has kind of a sad and hollow tone. I can't risk. I can't endanger my own inheritance. I've got to make my legacy sure. And so Mr. So-and-so fails the test. You and I are given tests all throughout our lives. Small tests, big tests, just to, to help you say, wh- where's your aim? Where's your aim? First, First Kings 17. We don't have time to, to turn there, but it's a story that you know Elijah. There's been a, a famine, and he comes back to this widow. And the widow just has a little bit of oil and some sticks, basically. She's going to somehow try to make some little loaf of bread after, off of this. And to feed her son and herself one last meal. And Elijah comes in and says, the Lord's going to be with you, but go home and take what you have, bake what you have, and give it to me. Oh, what a test. Take all that you have and give it to me. Then you'll have enough or more than you could possibly imagine. But imagine a mom and her son You feel that test? I mean, some strange prophet just shows up at my door, and I've got to give him everything I have? Yeah. And she makes the right choice. Remember Peter in the boat? Jesus says, hey, Peter, can you push out and let me do my sermon from out in the water? And he gets done with the the scene, and Peter's been cleaning his nets all night. They had not caught anything. And then Jesus gives Peter this tiny little test. What is it? Hey, can we push out a little bit further out? Can we drop down the nets? And what does Peter say? Oh, he's going to, you feel it, he's going to fail the test. Hey, we've been out all night. You ever done this with God? I mean, you can feel the test, but you're like already negotiating. Like, in case you didn't notice, we've been out not all night, but these great words you need to know in Luke chapter 5, because you say so. I'll do it. What a test. And Peter is given a great name just from passing this little test. You and I, you and I, many of us right now, we're in a little test. Somewhere God has placed you in saying, is it going to be about you or is it going to be about me? I don't know. You know, this passage is so, aren't you glad I just stayed to six verses today? But just what's been rolling around in my mind, I want it to roll around in yours so you can have fun with it this week. Do I really trust the slow work of God? Not just on my individual level, but a national level. Is it okay that he's working in America today for something that he's lining up for 2424? Is that okay? I mean, the answer is yes, because you can't do anything about it. But <laughs> So can you trust in the slow work of God? And in the meantime, when he gives you these little tests, can you, can you risk it all? Because you're, you're living for his name, not your name. Or are you lining everything up so everything's good just for you? might be aimed at the wrong target. Let's pray together. Lord, as you had these just six little verses, story from 3,000 years ago, has such power for us today. Everyone here is... Easily drawn into becoming Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. Just living our lives practically. Not really seeing the test that you're putting out there in front of us to risk, to trust in you in a way that we haven't trusted before. And maybe some of that trust is just in the waiting. Waiting on the slow work of God. You're at work right now. Would you would you help every heart hear, hear your voice? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.